You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. When Francis Drake returned from his circumnavigation of the globe to England, he found that the situation in Europe was dire. Both the voyages of John Hawkins and Drake's war were really English campaigns in the American theater of war of what was really an international European war. The war was largely undeclared. It took place mostly in smaller conflicts and battles rather than outright warfare, but in two fronts, it was something that could truly be called a war. In France, the Huguenot forces were entrenched against the forces of the king, and they had been really in a decades-long civil war. But in the Low Countries, where much of our story today takes place, things were moving from the realm of diplomacy and conflict to outright warfare. Now, the armies of both the Huguenot forces of the French and the Dutch armies They were well-trained, but they were really no match for the French and Spanish armies that they faced. These were two of the greatest armies of the world, backed not only by their respective kings, but by the full force of the Catholic Church. So the Protestant forces of the Huguenots and the Dutch and the English all turned to a third option. Instead of facing these armies on land, they faced them at sea, where they had a better chance. Now, while the Spanish did have the greatest navy in the world, unparalleled by anyone else in the West, we've learned that you don't need great warships and a massive armada to take on a great naval power. You need smaller fleets of quick, smaller vessels, manned by sailors who, while perhaps lacking in moral fiber, possessed a will to fight for their cause. This is episode number 11, The Sea Beggars. To understand today's story, we're going to need to take a step back. We've talked about the sea beggars before, we've talked about the Dutch and the Low Countries, but they've always been footnotes. They've been background characters in the story of Queen Elizabeth and her sea dogs, and they're going to be such important players in the story to come that we need to take a closer look at them. The Low Countries, well that's the 16th century name for what is today comprised of the Netherlands, Belgium, and Luxembourg. And even the name the Netherlands in German and Dutch means the Low Countries. Now these countries don't really have as ancient a past as most of the rest of Europe. Compared to Italy or Germany or Spain or France or England, they're a relatively newcomer on the block. The whole region was largely uninhabited for most of its history. While there were some people living in certain select areas, it was difficult for them to really build a civilization. It wasn't really possible to build much in the way of towns or cities until the Romans arrived and began industrializing the area. You see, the Low Countries are on the North Sea and the English Channel. They're that region where the Rhine enters Europe, and they're a very marshy, swampy area. 
It's that same region that's famous for their dikes, and it was the Romans who built really the first system of dikes in the Low Countries. The Roman border in continental Europe was essentially the Rhine, and they had it extremely well defended. And they had it defended all the way up to the North Sea, where they built forts and encampments. In order to man and fortify these forts, they built roads, and because of the problem of frequent flooding and the marshy nature of the area, they had to build these roads on raised embankments. And these embankments really were the first system of dikes that dried out some of the low countries and allowed people to start inhabiting the place full-time. Now, the post-Roman history of the region is extremely complex. Due to all the flooding and the politics of Europe at the time, Things are very difficult to follow, but really, this isn't important to our story. What is important to realize is that what became known as the Low Countries never really had a centralized government. Occasionally, one man or another would gain power under him and unify some of the Low Countries, but for the most part, they were essentially city-states that had a cultural significance to each other, but weren't really politically aligned. And they had something of a democratic aspect to them. Most of the people of the Low Countries didn't seem to want a single overlord over all of them. The cities in the Low Countries, such as Antwerp or Amsterdam, they usually had a governing body that was a city council, led mostly by white men who were pillars of the community, but that had a more democratic bent than what was going on in the rest of Europe, where feudalism and monarchy was the order of the day. Now, the 17 regions of the Low Countries, what were called the states, well, they did have feudal lords, but those lords gave their people certain what were called privileges. These privileges are something that today we would consider rights. Usually they were an exemption from certain taxes that didn't benefit the people who lived there, or sometimes it was the right to govern themselves in their city. Almost all of these provinces had an independent court of law in which you could be tried by a jury of your peers instead of by the local lord or the church. Now, that's not to say the church wasn't powerful in the Low Countries. It was. It was the most powerful organization in Europe and had as much influence on the people in the Low Countries as everywhere else. However, the Low Countries were always kind of a hotbed for dissent. It was the place that birthed and housed men like Erasmus of Rotterdam, who, though he was a Catholic his entire life, was famously critical of some of the church's less savory aspects at the time. This was something that was very common in the region. They were notorious free thinkers in Europe at the time. Now, the people in the Low Countries, if you were to hear one of them refer, I think even today, to the enemy, they wouldn't be referring to a foreign power. Usually, they would be talking about the sea. Life in this region was centered around the sea. It was a constant threat in the form of flooding, as well as really the thing that kept them alive. You see, farming was a dicey proposition in most of these regions. They usually didn't have farmland for very long, and if it flooded with seawater, that land wasn't too good to farm on after that. So most of the people in the Low Countries made their money and their fortunes through trade, through merchant activities, and due to that, the major trading hub in all of Northern Europe grew up in the Low Countries, the city of Antwerp. Now again, we've talked about Antwerp on the show before. It was that city that was closely allied with England, largely because they bought nearly all of England's wool, the prime export of the English countryside, and cities in the region would spin that wool into some of the finest cloth made in all of Europe. 
Now, people from all over Europe would come to Antwerp to buy that cloth, and they would trade things such as spices and fine wine and riches that you couldn't get anywhere else in Europe. So Antwerp became a serious financial power in the whole of world politics. However, during all of these centuries, since the fall of the Roman Empire, these small principalities and dukedoms, they all stayed independent for most of their history, up until the time of the 16th century. That was when a line of dukes from the region known as Burgundy began to amass power. Between shifting marriage alliances, open warfare, and sometimes outright buying land, these Burgundian dukes began to unify the provinces. And then in 1543... All of the 17 provinces of the Low Countries fell under the rule, finally, of one man. And that was Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor. That same emperor that was in office when Martin Luther became a powerful force in Europe. Charles V was arguably the most powerful man that Europe had seen since the height of the Roman Empire. He was heir to the Holy Roman Empire. That was his by birth. However, also his by birth from a marriage alliance a generation before, he also had control of the Low Countries. That marriage alliance was to that same line of Burgundian dukes that had taken control there. Now beyond that, on his mother's side, his grandparents were Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain, the Catholic monarchs, those very same monarchs that sent Christopher Columbus across the Atlantic Ocean and founded the Spanish New World Empire. Charles inherited their throne as well. So Charles ruled not only the Holy Roman Empire, not only the Low Countries, but Spain, as well as all of Spain's overseas holding, including those in the Atlantic, in North Africa, and in the Americas. He controlled what was, in terms of sheer land mass, the largest empire the world had ever seen. This, however, proved to be a bit much for Charles V. Even the Roman emperors at the height of the empire decided they needed to split up the empire because ruling that much territory was simply too much work for one single man. So in 1555, Charles V abdicated his throne. In his homeland, the Holy Roman Empire, in Italy and in Germany, he abdicated in favor of his brother. However, for the rest of the empire, that being essentially Spain, the Low Countries, and all of Spain's holdings overseas, he abdicated that in favor of his son, Philip II. That is the same Philip II who we've talked about so much up until now. The Spanish king who married Queen Elizabeth's predecessor, Mary, sat on the throne of England, fought a war with those two countries against France, and finally, when Mary died and he lost his power in England, treated for peace with France and decided it was time to meet this young new Queen Elizabeth. It was at those peace talks in France where Philip II met the young Queen Elizabeth that we meet the real major player in our story, a man named William of Orange. William was born in 1533 as William of Nassau. He was born the son of a minor noble house, and despite their blue blood, they were not a wealthy family. There were a grand total of 17 children in that family, and his mother made clothes for all of them with her own two hands and cooked every meal for all of them. This was not the lap of luxury he was born into. He was educated at home by his mother, not in Latin and courtly manners, but primarily in how to read, and what they read was the Bible, along with some other theological works, mostly that taught them the tenets of Protestantism. Then, at the age of 11, William's entire life changed. One of his cousins died, a man who had been prince of some of the richest land in the Low Countries, as well as a province known as Orange, that was within the borders of France, but not under the control of the French crown. 
and he left William as his sole heir. This made William of Nassau, at eleven years old, William of Orange. Now, the king of France and the king of Spain were not willing to let a young nobody who happened to be a Protestant become one of the more powerful nobles in their lands. But instead of refusing his claim, they elected to have him sent to court where he could be educated in all the courtly trappings that he was going to need to know. He was sent to the court of Mary, who was the regent of the Low Countries. She also happened to be sister to Charles V. His life at court was antithesis to everything he had known so far. While he had been raised a Protestant, Mary was a Catholic, and his first action was to be baptized and taught about the Catholic faith. While his home had been an austere place, the court was opulent. He traded his homespun black wool for colorful silks and linens, and the solemn hymns that he had learned at home for the most popular and robust music of the day. William excelled in his studies, not just in the things that he would need to know as far as manners, but as far as the church was concerned and politics. He became a favorite of Mary very quickly, and even the emperor himself took an interest in the young William. He was known to, when the emperor would visit the Low Countries, one of his provinces, have long talks with William of Orange, alone, in private, and whenever they would have diplomatic meetings with other lords, he would frequently bring William with him to learn and discuss for himself. William became a spectacular musician and artist. He really took to his new life very well, but through all of that, he never forgot his roots. He never forgot his hard-working mother, who he loved for the rest of his life, and he always remembered the populist leanings of his upbringing. When Charles V abdicated his throne in 1555, William was there. He had really grown to be something of a second father to William of Orange, and when Charles V climbed down off his throne, he leaned on the shoulder of William of Orange. And William continued to play an important role in politics. He was there in France when Charles's son, Philip, met King Henry of France to sign that peace treaty. As a powerful noble who had lands not only within the borders of France, but one of the few nobles there that had lands in the Low Countries, he was chosen as a hostage to stay with the King of France until the treaties were on more solid footing. This was something that was typical at the time. These hostages were honored guests of the other court, and frequently, William would go on outings with the French king, along with some of the other Spanish nobility around. One of their favorite activities was to go on long, extravagant hunts. On these hunts, Henry would speak freely. Everybody there, they, well, they were friends. They were all good Catholic gentlemen and nobility. Now, William learned that King Henry of France and Philip II of Spain well, they had plans to oust all of the Protestants from Europe. Now that the war between Spain and France was over, the French were able to concentrate on their civil war with the Huguenot rebels. Philip, on the other hand, had plans to burn every Protestant out of the Low Countries. Henry would talk about this at length. And William listened to him, listened to all his boastings, but he said nothing. However, his mind must have been troubled. He came from a Protestant household. His mother and father were members of Lutheran nobility. His own lands in the Low Countries were filled with untold numbers of Protestant peasants. And then, in addition to everything that Henry had to say, William got troubling news from back home in the Low Countries. 
When Philip had left the Low Countries, after signing the peace accords and after having all those Spanish troops on Low Country soil to fight the French, he had left around 3,000 Spanish troops on their soil, something that he had promised not to do. More and more Spanish officials were being appointed in high positions of power as well, something that was technically illegal. You see, King Philip was not the king of the Low Countries. He was either duke or prince of the Low Countries, but to be a lord in these nations, you had to be essentially elected by the people. You had to be agreed upon by them, and he had been universally agreed upon by all of the states, but he didn't have the political authority to do what he was doing. However, those 3,000 troops that he had left on Low Country soil, well, they make a powerful argument. Every day the situation in his home and in his lands was growing more and more dire. But William's position itself was tenuous. He was a hostage of the king of France, a well-treated noble hostage, yes, but still at the king's mercy. So though learning all this terrible information, William didn't say anything back, which is where he earned his name, William the Silent. When he returned to his lands in the Low Countries, William went to work. While he had been a hostage, a new regent had been appointed in the Low Countries by Philip. This was his sister, his half-sister, Margarita de Parma. She was, officially, supposed to rule through correlation with an official council called the Council of State. This was something of a parliament. All of the highest nobility in the Low Countries belonged to it, including William the Silent. But in reality, that wasn't how things really worked. Margarita ruled the country in concert with one man, really, Bishop Antoine de Granville. This was Philip II's chosen representative in the Low Countries. Granville was a proud Spanish Catholic. He had really no love for the Low Countries and absolutely detested the Protestant element there, so really he was perfect for Philip's purposes. William spent his first couple of years back home contacting all of the nobility of the 17 different states in the Netherlands. He organized them and built strong ties and allies among them and even began a network of communication between them, correspondence, that they would be able to talk to each other very quickly and relay news even faster. This network of lords had several objectives, but the first and most important to them was to petition... Margarita de Parma, Granville, and Philip II himself to remove those 3,000 Spanish troops still stationed on their soil. The petitions, and they sent many of them, went unheeded for two full years, until Philip finally had a need to move those troops off of low country soil into his war with the Arabs and Turks in the Mediterranean. So, William's coalition immediately shifted its focus. With the withdrawal of those Spanish troops, Granville was raised to be a cardinal and archbishop, and this granted him the authority to call in an inquisition. This inquisition did what inquisitions were intended to do. They searched out anyone who wasn't a Catholic and kidnapped them and questioned them, usually ending in torture and sometimes even in execution. It terrorized the countryside of all of the Low Countries, and naturally, William and his group of nobles that had banded together to fight this injustice, well, they decided to press for Granville's removal. They took to wearing a symbol on all of their coats. They had this symbol embroidered on the coats of their soldiers and their servants. The symbol they decided upon was a quiver full of arrows. The quiver represented 
the unity among these nobles. The fact that a single arrow could be broken, and yet many arrows together could not be broken. It also represented the fact that they were open to rebellion. They were fighting the power that they saw as unjust, and they were not afraid to tell that power exactly how they felt. In fact, they would put this symbol on banners and march it through the city square of every town in the Low Countries. They even went so far as to promise Margarita de Parma that if Granville were not removed, all of the taxes that they were required to pay would not be paid at all. They said that if Granville stayed in office beyond that, they could not promise that the Low Countries would stay peaceful. This was essentially telling the regent of the Low Countries, Philip's representative, that if they did not remove the man that they hated so much, they would go into open rebellion against them. However, on the other hand, if Granville were removed, taken away from power, then they promised that there would be no acts of insubordination and the taxes would flow freely. This was an argument that Margarita definitely understood. You see, her realm was always hurting for money, especially in this time when taxes were not exactly forthcoming. So, learning that there was a way to get more tax revenue, which she desperately needed, she wrote and petitioned Philip herself to remove Granville from office. And finally they did. Granville was sent away to, I believe the excuse was, visit his aging mother, but really, he went to Italy and was never to return to the Netherlands again. Now, in much the way that William had been sent to learn courtly manners as a young man, and similar to how he had been held hostage after the signing of the peace accord with France, William sent his daughter to Margarita de Parma, to her court, to be a lady-in-waiting and learn all the courtly manners that she would need to make a good match. In return, Margarita granted William a new title. She gave him the position of Stadholder, which was a high office in three provinces that was Zeeland, Holland, and Utrecht. The Stadholder was the commander-in-chief of all the armed forces of that area, as well as the highest magistrate, the highest official of law in the region, and someone who was essentially in complete control of these areas. This was a big promotion for William and something that he definitely appreciated. William saw, along with the other nobles who had received a similar treatment, that all of their taxes were paid on time. They had had their demands met, and they attempted to make this a lasting peace. However, the Inquisition was still in place. Granville, the man who had called the Inquisition, had left, but all of the Inquisitors, all of the soldiers, all of the officials that were there performing the Inquisition, they were still there, doing their jobs. Ousting Granville had really done nothing to improve the situation of the common people in the Low Countries. Everywhere, poor Protestants were arrested and tortured. Families lost their land, merchants lost their shops and their ships. Whole families were left fatherless, with no land, no money, and no hope. I'm going to quote from a book called William the Silent and the Dutch Revolt by Ermine de Jong. It's not exactly the most reputable source. It's from the 70s, and in a lot of ways it's heavily biased, but it has some of the most colorful writing about this period that I've found, and I'm really in love with this passage, so I'm going to read it to you. Quote, Everywhere there was unrest. For some years the harvest had been a great disappointment. The winters were severe and long. There was underemployment, poverty, and even starvation. The heretics became more daring, even in the face of the prosecuting magistrates. The poor attended the secret Protestant meetings and watched the heretics dying like martyrs and heroes. Everywhere there was fear. 
fear of the king, of the inquisition, of another severe winter without food. There were whispering groups of people on street corners and in the inns talking of resistance. At last there was open action. Groups of people chanted psalms, marching the streets in the nights, hidden in long, dark coats, putting out lanterns and knocking down the guards. They broke into the prisons to free their fellow heretics, and they even attacked the executioners, threw paving stones at the guards around the scaffolds, and snatched the victims out of their hands. There are several stories about half-burned martyrs. These were the ordinary people, and they acted in despair. End quote. The attitude in their country was changing, and while the higher nobility such as William had been largely bought off by Margarita de Parma, many of the lower nobility had not been. So, in 1566, a group of about 300 lesser nobles, these are younger sons of these noble families primarily, even including William's younger brother, Louis de Nassau, signed a pact called the Compromise of Nobles, and they pinned a list of grievances that they intended to be read by both Margarita and Philip II. They took this list, which they called the Request, and they marched up to the regent's palace to present it to her. This was intended to end the hostility towards the Protestant underclass. However, when Margarita saw this force approaching her palace, she was reportedly unnerved. But one of her advisors was said to have leaned over to her and whispered in her ear, quote, Fear not, madame, they are only beggars. End quote. The man who was at the head of that column, right next to Louis de Nassau, a man named Henry of Bredero, he overheard this, supposedly, and he was a man that certainly looked the part. He had long, unkempt hair and a very long, wild beard, and he was said to have a temperament that matched. In a lot of ways, he was something of a barbarian in the eyes of many of these very genteel Renaissance people. But what that advisor said, fear not, they are only beggars, that went on to be something of a let-them-eat-cake moment. See, it was something that Margarita did not say, and likely was never said at all, but it proved to be something that galvanized this nobility and the common people. It became a rallying cry for their burgeoning movement. When they were at dinner later that night, feasting and celebrating after Parma agreed to bring the letter to Philip's attention, the nobles laughed at being called beggars, and they raised a cheer. They called out, in unison, long live the beggars. And it was something that was going to become a rallying call and a battle cry for all of the Dutch. In a lot of ways, it's really kind of a perfect symbol for them. First of all, they were beggars who had had their titles, lands, and riches stripped away by this Spanish overlord. And beyond that, most of these men were Protestants, people who believed that they followed the true word of God while the Catholics didn't. They were people who believed that their poverty mirrored that of Christ. They attempted in all of their actions to be as Christ-like as possible, even, and perhaps even especially, mirroring Christ's actions at the temple when he drove the money changers out. It was around this time, actually, that many works of art were created, one notably by a man named El Greco of Christ driving the money changers out. This was something of a response to this large amount of people who believed that they were very Christ-like, outing the sources of power from their towns and cities. But all of these letters, all of this diplomacy, it was intended to avoid the violence that was simmering right under the surface. This violence was due almost entirely to the Inquisition. 
People were dying, and they were unable to fight against the Inquisition, and it was becoming a more and more dangerous situation all across the Netherlands. Yet the Inquisition didn't stop. It kept executing and torturing the Protestant masses. The group of that lower nobility, they knew that this situation was bad. So did the upper nobility, men such as William the Silent, even so did Margarita, so did Philip. But they didn't do anything to stop it. On July 22nd, Margarita de Parma received a letter informing her that there was a destruction of churches and church property imminent. This was something that people across Europe had seen for years, ever since the Lutheran Reformation. In France, uh, for years, they had been dealing with Huguenot radicals defacing effigies of the saints, attacking priests in the streets, and burning churches. It had only been 30 or so years since the town of Munster in Germany had been taken over by Anabaptist rebels and had executed or exiled every non-Anabaptist from town, including not only the Catholics, but the more moderate Lutherans as well. This must have been at the forefront of Margarita's mind when she received that letter. She knew that these were possibilities, that these people were growing desperate, and that she had to do something to stop them. Unfortunately, the letter came too late. She was out of time. It was on August 10th, 1566, the feast day of St. Lawrence, when that storm of Protestant rage engulfed the Low Countries. It was called the Bildenstrom, or the Iconoclastic Fury, and it began in a town called Stenvoord. Today, it's part of France in the very southwest of what was then the Low Countries. It was when a group of pilgrims invaded the chapel of St. Lawrence. This group of pilgrims destroyed all of the Catholic icons, the saints' effigies, and as much church property as they could get their hands on. It was a tremendously violent affair, but it wasn't as violent as what had happened elsewhere in Europe. There was no loss of life reported, no clergy killed, no people attacked beyond defending their property that these Protestants took from them. It was as civilized as it could be. But it would get worse. Hello all, Eric Rivenus with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts.
this iconoclastic fury, it spread. Churches all over the Low Countries began burning. It moved almost as a wave. People would hear about what had happened and attack the church in their town. By August 20th, only 10 days later, this movement had reached Antwerp, the cultural hub of the region. They attacked one of the preeminent cathedrals in all of Europe. It was the Church of Our Lady in Antwerp. They did terrible damage to the church, much of which can actually still be seen today. There are images of religious significance that the church fathers decided not to repair to show what had happened on that day. The interior of the church was nearly destroyed, and luckily it caught fire but not bad enough to destroy the church. If we're going to use our metaphor of this being similar to the French Revolution, the they are but beggars being similar to let them eat cake, well then this attack, it acted sort of like a Dutch version of the storming of the Bastille. The revolutionary Protestants, as well as many of the opportunists who were just joining in, well it inspired them. And the following days, churches, monasteries, convents, chapels, hospitals, basically anything that was attached to the church, even priests' houses and houses of those people in town who were well-respected members of the church, well, they were attacked and destroyed. And the non-violent attacks earlier were becoming more and more violent. It was a dangerous time to be a Catholic in the Low Countries. This Bildenstrom moved finally to Amsterdam, then further north and east along the coast. It hit Holland almost worst of all. Hundreds of churches all across the states were destroyed. An Englishman who was a Catholic that was in exile in the Low Countries, he described an attack on one of these churches. Quote, These fresh followers of this new preaching threw down the graven and defaced the painted images not only of Our Lady, but of all others in the town. They tore the curtains, dashed in pieces the carved work of the brass and stone, broke the altars, spoilt the clothes and corporesses, rested the irons, conveyed away or break the chalices and the vestments, pulled up the brass of the gravestones, the blessed sacrament of the altar they trod under their feet, and, horrible as it is to say, shed their stinking piss upon it. These false brethren burned and rent not only all kinds of church books, but moreover destroyed whole libraries of books of all sciences and tongues, yea, the holy scriptures and the ancient fathers. End quote. As horrific as this must have been for any of the priests or even any of the Catholics who witnessed it, for the people taking part in the Bildenstrom, this was almost a fun affair. It had an element of carnival to it. There were people who were around this, not exactly taking part, but serving beer and sausages and bread and cheese. In some of these attacks, there were even plays put on by some of the youth around who were enacting a a play of papists versus beggars. These attacks lasted for just over three months, and naturally, after they died down, neither Margarita de Parma or Philip II could allow this to go unpunished. So Philip II sent in a man, a man called the Iron Duke, named Fernando Alvarez de Toledo, the Duke of Alba. The Iron Duke was a military hero who was renowned all throughout Europe for his prowess. He had done extremely well against the Muslims in the Mediterranean. He had done very well in the war against France. He was a man that was greatly feared by any of Spain's enemies. And now he brought down his full force upon the Low Countries. 
The nobility in the Low Countries did everything they could to distance themselves from this iconoclastic fury. Immediately, just a few days after arriving in Brussels, the Duke of Alba established what he called the Council of Troubles, an organization that the locals in the region knew as the Court of Blood. They began arresting anybody that was even suspected of having anything to do with the iconoclastic fury. They arrested everyone from the lowest peasants and actual beggars up to the higher nobility. William the Silent knew that it was time to leave the Low Countries. He began making preparations even before the Duke of Alba arrived. He attempted to persuade one of his very closest friends, a man called the Count of Edgemont, to accompany him. But Edmont was a lifelong Catholic. He'd had nothing to do with this iconoclastic fury. He was also a war hero in many of Spain's wars against France. He was a member of what was called the Order of the Golden Fleece, as was the Duke of Alba. They were brothers in that sense. But William the Silent did not believe that this would be enough to protect his friend. According to legend, when William left on his journey, Edgemont's last words to him were, quote, Farewell, prince without a land. To which William replied, Farewell, count without a head. End quote. And, as it turned out, they would both be proven correct. Now, William wasn't alone in his exile. There was a flood of noble refugees from the Low Countries. Not only William the Silent, but also two of his brothers left, along with many, many others. And it wasn't just nobility. The common people were leaving in droves. Many people who had had their lands taken away or their families destroyed left and tried to find exile elsewhere, tried to find some land that would succor them. And this was difficult because they were nearly all Protestants, and there were very few places in Europe that would take in Protestants. The only two that were really available were England and parts of France or parts of Germany. The nations of France and the Holy Roman Empire would officially not take Protestant refugees, but there were many Protestant sympathizers there that would sneak them in. William and his brothers fled back to their familial lands in Germany, but this tide of people who were escaping elsewhere in Europe, they began making contacts. Many of these people already knew each other and had lines of communication open. Between the Huguenot lands in France, the many, many Dutch exiles in England, and those like William of Orange that were living in the sympathetic parts of Germany. They began to organize a military resistance. The French Huguenot force that allied itself decided to attack from the southwest, from France itself. William's brother, Louis of Nassau, he was going to attack from the northeast, into Holland. And William of Silent was going to attack right in the center, heading straight for Antwerp. The French Huguenot force never even made it to the Low Countries. They were intercepted by a force of their French king before they were able to make it and turned back. Alba, who was supposed to be distracted by this initial Huguenot invasion, was able to deal with Louis very easily. His army was small and meant to be more of an irritant, taking back valuable lands while Alba was engaged elsewhere, but Louis was defeated quickly. So William, who had 21,000 troops, faced off against the Duke of Alba. However, the Duke of Alba decided not to fight William the Silent. He entrenched his forces nearby. William presented battle to him time and again, a total of 29 times over three months. But every time he would present battle to the Duke of Alba, Alba would not take. 
He would keep his defenses up and not allow William to make any attacks on his position. Any time that William would try to take a city or any other valuable resources, Alba would block his path, but he would never enter battle with him. This wasn't cowardice, this was strategy. You see, these 21,000 troops of William the Silent, the vast majority of them were paid mercenaries from Germany. And eventually, all of his money dried up. And when mercenaries aren't getting paid, they're not fighting for a cause. The army dissipated and fled. Soon, William the Silent was forced to flee as well. The planned, glorious military reconquest of the Low Countries was a complete failure. The Huguenot forces were invested in France and could no longer be of any help. William, he was completely broke. He had spent all his money on what essentially was an entirely useless army. He realized that he had to turn to other tactics, other troops, other battlefields, and other allies. To quote the Dutch-American historian, Dingman Versteeg, quote, All were men without a country, outlawed by the blind instruments of a foreign potentate who had endeavored by all possible means to make his royal will law in a country of constitutional liberties. Revenge was their motive, privateering their object, while necessity often drove them to piracy. They ended their career by becoming the co-founders of one of the most illustrious republics of modern times. In history they are known as the Sea Beggars, that unique aggregation of freebooters and avengers whose like never before nor since has been viewed upon the scene of the world's events. End quote. Even before the arrival of the Duke of Alba, or before the arrival of the Inquisition, or even before the Spanish arrival in the Low Countries at all, the coast of the Netherlands was home to pirates of all stripes. The Dutch were a seafaring people by nature. Piracy was inevitable, especially in a region that was so rich with foreign trade routes and foreign ships. But with the arrival of the Inquisition, the arrival of the Duke of Alba and his court of blood, thousands of people were turned away from their homes. The prospects for any young Protestant man who was growing up in this region, well, they were vanishing quickly. And in the Low Countries, there was a tide of patriotism rising. The men who had for decades been nothing more than outlaws were becoming to the Dutch a valuable resource. Any man who had a ship and the will to attack Spanish ships, or Portuguese, or French, or really any Catholic ships for that matter, well, they had their ranks swelled with hundreds upon hundreds of young men who had no other prospects in life. These men were hungry, desperate, and angry, and they were joining pirate ships at an alarming rate. What had once been just a few small, sleek pirate ships grew. They would take any merchant vessels they could find, arm them with the cannon from any forts or cities that had been conquered by the Spanish and abandoned by the Dutch, and turn them into fighting ships that they used for piracy. The first historical record of these pirates-turned-patriots comes from the regions known as Friesland and Holland. They began to congregate, primarily in a town in Holland called Imden. There was an inn in Imden called the Golden Fountain that they favored. It became such a popular hangout for these pirates that it wound up being called the Beggar's Inn. Now, at the Beggar's Inn, a pirate captain could buy a round of drinks for his men. He could meet up with other pirate captains, talk about the best places for fishing grounds, as well as where any Spanish ships might be in the future. 
They were also able to meet up with merchants of ill repute who were likely to fence their goods and give them any leads they might have. And occasionally, they could meet up with a representative of some rebel nobleman. I imagine these representatives were well-dressed and slightly out of place, but they were an important facet of the Beggar's Inn. These noblemen's representatives would confer with these pirate captains. When they had a certain need of naval warfare, they would ask these pirate captains, frequently pay them well to attack a trade route or attack a city. Sometimes this was just to keep the Spanish occupied while the Dutch noblemen attacked somewhere else, but frequently they would employ these pirates to attack targets of a certain political or military import. The Duke of Alba took note of these pirates. They were becoming a real menace, and in April of 1568, he commanded the authorities in all the regions of the Low Countries to be on watch for them. He had towers in all the ports, man guns that could take out any pirate ships that invaded. In Holland, the man who was the stadtholder, the military leader in that region, on May the 6th, after Louis of Nassau had that unfortunate invasion, he released a command. He informed any villages in the district called Waterland of the danger of a possible invasion from the direction of Emden, saying, quote, We have learned that those congregating about Emden and Wed are equipping and arming some vessels and warn you to be prepared so that they will not be able to invade any of His Majesty's towns. End quote. It was around this time that King Philip II of Spain enacted a new rule in the Netherlands. Any captain, be they Spanish or Dutch or French or English, had to obey the rules and laws of a Catholic country. Any Protestants had to behave as though they were Catholic, and if they did not, they could be taken by the Inquisition in the Low Countries. This was something that we talked about a few weeks ago, when many English captains were taken by Spanish soldiers in the Low Countries. This is that very same event that enraged Elizabeth so much against Philip of Spain. Not only had Philip led England into a disastrous war against the French, not only had he destroyed their trade prospects abroad, he had entered into open war, a war of conquest against one of England's closest allies in the Low Countries, and now he was kidnapping England's own captains and commandeering their ships. It was said that in London her rage could be felt throughout the city. However, her chance for retribution came quickly. Both French Huguenot pirates and Dutch pirates used many of the English ports as a port of call. It was a safe haven, a Protestant country where they would not be persecuted, and frequently were able to sell many of their stolen goods in English towns. As things grew worse and worse in Europe, they became less merely friends and trading partners and closer to what you would call allies. In November 1568, a fleet of Huguenot pirates chased four Spanish ships into English harbors. The English and the Spanish were still technically allies, and the Spanish needed a safe haven from these Huguenot pirates, which is why they chose to land in England. You see, these ships were important, they were very valuable, and they needed a safe place to wait out this storm. It turned out, on inspection, that these four Spanish ships that had been chased by Protestant pirates into English ports carried all of the gold that the Duke of Alba was to use to pay his forces in the Low Countries. This was an extremely dangerous situation for the Spanish. They knew exactly how angry Queen Elizabeth was. She had made her rage apparent, and the Spanish ambassador in England wrote to King Philip, quote, 
Up to the present, two cutters and one other vessel have arrived safely in Antwerp, and, for the rest of them, Benedict Spignola asked me to intercede. At the same time I received news of them, I requested an audience with the Queen, which was granted on the 29th, and the Queen consented to give me a passport for the money to be brought overland, or to lend one of her own ships to convey the vessel in safety, of which I gave notice to the Duke of Alba. I warned the captains of the vessels, and had letters from the Queen sent to the officials of the ports, ordering them to defend the ships, which was highly necessary, as, although in the cases where the ships could get shelter near the towns, they have done so, the pirates have attacked them, and some of our men have been killed defending their vessels, with the greater loss still on the part of the corsairs. Many people have advised the Queen to seize the money, and the Vice-Admiral has written of this effort to Plymouth. I am in hourly expectation of the Duke's order." End quote. Elizabeth had signed an order of safe conduct, a passport for all of the gold to be taken overland to the town of Dover. From there, it would be given a naval escort to Antwerp. This was all exactly what she was supposed to do. She was still technically allied to the King of Spain, and this was his gold. So she didn't have any intention at the time of betraying this and, as many in her court suggested, taking the gold from Philip. She signed this document on December the 2nd. It was then, the very next day, on December the 3rd, that a letter arrived in London. It went into the hands of William Hawkins, the older brother of John Hawkins, who was the man that had written the letter. The letter came from the Caribbean, informing William Hawkins, who informed the Queen, that a hurricane had dashed her fleet in the Caribbean and that they had subsequently been betrayed and attacked by Spanish officials in the Gulf of Mexico. The day after Elizabeth signed the letter of safe passage, that was when she learned of that troublesome voyage of John Hawkins, that same voyage that Francis Drake was the captain of the Judith and where he abandoned the rest of the fleet to return to England. The Queen learned that the Spanish officials in the Caribbean had killed her appointed naval officers. And currently... All of the gold intended to pay the troops who were occupying England's closest ally was traveling over land within her borders. Elizabeth learned that that gold did not actually belong to the king of Spain. It was a loan from a wealthy Italian merchant at 10% interest. Elizabeth, after learning of the betrayal at the hands of the Spanish, sent her top advisor, William Cecil, to discuss the terms of that loan with the Italian merchant. She gave him a better offer on those terms of interest, and considering how dangerous the situation was in the Low Countries, the Italian merchant saw that loaning the money to Queen Elizabeth was a much safer bet. So while en route to the city of Dover, all of the gold that had formerly belonged to the King of Spain was transported directly to the Tower of London, where it was put under heavy guard. All of this happened so quickly that King Philip did not learn of it until after it was already in the Tower. Again, a letter from the Spanish ambassador to King Philip. Quote, the Queen has taken possession of the boxes of money brought by Lupe de Sierra's ship and 64 boxes from the cutters in Plymouth. She is going to do the same with the other two cutters in Falmouth, notwithstanding her promise and letters, besides the passport she gave. The Duke of Alba has ordered all English ships and property to be seized. They tried to raise the mob against the foreigners, but the aldermen and constables acted well and took possession of the streets, so that matter was ended in the seizure of property. The sloops that these pirates have taken are four, with a Spanish ship, all very valuable. 
They, the English government, have also seized the property of Portuguese. The heretic knaves of the council are going headlong into perdition, incited by Cecil, who is indescribably crazy in his zeal for heresy. The council are in consultation every day, and I know not how it will end. End quote. The Duke of Alba was quickly losing control of the situation in the Netherlands. His army hadn't been paid in months, and they were threatening mutiny if there was any further delay in their payment. As it turned out, there would be a delay. The Dutch sea beggars and the English sea dogs, they controlled the North Sea because the Spanish fleet, the majority of it, was engaged in the Mediterranean against the Turks. Alba needed money fast, and he needed to keep all of the Dutch from learning of how tenuous his situation there really was. So he decided to kill two birds with one stone in order to raise the money and keep things quiet in the Netherlands. He seized every English ship in the Netherlands, every ship's captain, and all of the property on board. This action was in direct opposition to nearly every one of the treaties ever signed between the English and the Spanish. He had broken these treaties, which freed Elizabeth's hand. She decreed, quote, any merchants born or living under the allegiance of the king of Spain who may be found in towns, ports, or other places under suspicion of hiding or disguise, or in any manner of fraud in order to prevent the detention of themselves and their goods, shall be called to account by the officers of justice of such places with the help of all justices of the peace, who shall inquire and examine the said merchants by all legitimate methods and cast them into prison, no matter to what nation they belong, including all those who may abet or help to hide those who practice such fraud, and especially those who may have concealed such persons in their property. Her Majesty, having also learnt from trustworthy sources that it was the intention to detain her subjects beyond the sea, under the pretext that the Queen had detained in one of her ports a certain ship and three or four small boats in which were a certain sum of money, Her Majesty thinks fit to declare briefly the facts of the case, by which it will be seen that the detention of her subjects was unjust and without due cause. End quote. This was a dangerous situation, but as it turned out, it was exactly what Elizabeth was hoping for. She needed this pretext to enter into war with Spain. Things had grown so dire, but if she were the one to break their treaties, then many of the independent powers in Europe would have sided against her. But now that Spain was the first to break the treaties, she had every excuse she could possibly need. Finally, William Cecil could now meet with William of Orange officially and begin to collaborate. The English would offer any aid and succor to any Dutch patriots that needed it, especially the sea beggars, and the sea beggars began to use England really as their primary base of operations. In return, the sea beggars would do all they could to repel the hated Spanish from the Netherlands and restore England's place as their primary trading partner. After the meeting, William the Silent sent his brother, Louis, to the French Huguenot port of La Rochelle, where there waited 18 ships of the Dutch sea beggars, led by a man named William de la Marck. William the Silent had provided his brother Louis with 18 letters that he was to present to each one of the ship's captains in this small Dutch fleet. Each of these letters was a letter of reprisal, a letter of Marck, that would, legally, under the terms of the Dutch Revolution, allow them to attack any Spanish ships in their waters. At almost the exact same time, Elizabeth had done exactly the same thing to many of her sea dogs in both the North Sea and the Channel and the Atlantic Ocean. So had many of the Huguenot pirates been given leave to attack any Spanish ships they cared to. The Dutch 
the French Protestants, and the English were all allied together now. The battle lines had been drawn. The lines were drawn down to visions both religious and political. These were, really, the first maneuvers in what would be called the Eighty Years' War. That was a global war that, for its first years, would be fought by pirates on the high seas. But that's going to be all for today. We've given a lot of background on the Dutch pirates, who are going to be a major player in the story to come, and set the stage for some of the most notorious acts of piracy in history. Next week, we're going to look briefly at the Huguenot pirates and some of their earlier days, and then we're going to look at the actions of both the French and the English and the Dutch and their fight on the high seas against the allied forces of the Spanish and the French. This was going to be a war that would shape Europe forever and shape the politics of the Caribbean for centuries. I hope everybody enjoyed this episode. It took a little longer to get out than most of our previous episodes have. This story is getting very complex, and all of a sudden, there are a lot of moving parts, and I wanted to give some pretty important background information into one of the key players. We're really going to need to know some of this stuff, because things are coming to a head very rapidly, and things are about to get, frankly, quite explosive. I'd like to thank everybody who has donated on the website, Pirate History Podcast, through our PayPal button. That really helps keep the podcast afloat. I'd like to go ahead and remind everybody that we've also got a Patreon campaign, which anybody who would like to become a patron, it's only a dollar a show, and that really helps keep the lights on. But if you're interested in supporting the show, there are a couple of cheaper ways that you can go about it. Recently, I partnered with abebooks.com. Now, I'm not being paid to advertise for them, but they are a really spectacular service that connects used and rare book dealers with you, the consumer. I've added a bibliography and sources section to each of the episodes on the website, and the links to each of those books will take you to abebooks.com listing on that book. If you're interested in learning more about any of the topics we talk about, or you have any need to look for rare books, that would be a great place to start, and anytime you use the search function or one of those links, well, abebooks throws me a couple of bucks, and you get access to some of the greatest books in the world, so it's kind of a win-win situation. And of course, we always really appreciate it if you go to iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn or Podbean and leave a review. I've been reading some of those, and some of you have been saying some of the nicest things. Your response has really been kind of overwhelming for me. I really appreciate everything you guys are doing out there. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you enjoy the song, why not go on over and check them out at brillig.com.au. After you're done over there, you can go to our website at piratehistorypodcast.com or go ahead and like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, any of that stuff. But most importantly, once again, thank you for listening. Come now to play.
born, the old captain has died. Let him live on in legend tonight.